Welcome to today's science podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm Sean Heath, and today I have the honor of speaking with Hunter Gabbard, a PhD candidate at the University of Glasgow and a researcher with the LIGO-Virgo collaboration. First off, Sir Gabbard? Should I? Is, I don't know how to approach <laughs> someone who works in a Nobel Prize environment. First off, how are you today, Hunter? I'm doing great, Sean. How are you? I am doing quite well. I'm a little bit nervous. Um, I, I, the the whole Nobel Prize thing is throwing me for a loop. So I'm going to ease into this kind of slowly. Please give me your journey from. I get. Uh, you know what? I want to go back to you started college, right? I want to kind of go. Just give me a brief little tour from college to winding up working in these mind-bending sort of research environment that you're in. Right. Yeah. So um, I started working with uh, LIGO in 2013. So that was my my freshman year of college. Um, And I remember it was the first or second week uh, that I got there. And I walked in and I knew I I wanted to get involved in research somehow. I didn't didn't care if I was was just uh, working in a lab doing some, some, I just wanted to get, I wanted to get involved. Uh, so the first person I walked up to was uh, this guy, Luca um, Pambelli. Uh, I think he's now the department chair there. And uh, I told him, I really want to do theory. I want to do theory because every every physicist wants to wants to do theory at some point. He's like, okay. And I was like, well, do you know do you know how to do you know this and this? Like, no, no, not really. So he's like, okay. Why don't you audit like one of my one of my general relativity or one of my general relativity courses? I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. Um, and it was like the second year graduate level course. I was like, all right, I, I can handle this. And then I walk in there, and then the first the first day, it just Whoosh, it was like all over, way over my head. I had no idea what was going on. Um, and I went through the whole semester like that. I was like, okay, I was pick, picked up bits and pieces here and there. And I came back and I was like, well, can I work with you now? And he said, well, we should probably keep doing this. And well, maybe, maybe I should go look around and see what, what else I get involved with. And, and the, the first time, I remember walking down the, the hallway and I saw this poster about LIGO. And I was like, wow, that's a really, that's a really audacious experiment. Um, how can I get involved? And so uh, I found out this guy, Marco Cavaglia, uh, who's a professor there. Um, as I walked into his office and I asked him, well, how can I, how can I help and what can I do? And, and uh, we kind of just went off from there. And um, I didn't really know much about LIGO, and, but he kind of took me underneath his wing and, and taught me all, all the things I needed to know and you know, how to program and uh, how to do statistics and, and everything else like that. And um, from there, uh, yeah, that was kind of, that was kind of really it. And I, I never got disinterested. I, I always thought that somehow I'd get burned out, but, uh, it's just really, really incredibly fascinating. You mentioned something interesting about programming and statistics. When most mm-hmm. people think of, you know, uh, gravitational waves and the universe, they really think more rockets and astronauts. They don't think about a lot of coding and computing and yeah. mathematics, it sounds like there's an awful lot of mathematics involved in what you do. Yeah, um, especially uh, so. What I do is is mainly I, I work in data analysis, um, so I, I don't work in necessarily the hardware side, but um, a lot of it involves uh, programming in Python and you know we're working with uh, various statistical models and stuff and and uh, machine learning, which is really just a, a toolkit that uses a, a bunch of linear algebra and math and statistics and and puts it in code speak. Um, so yeah, it's not necessarily the, 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 the very traditional, you know, uh, old, old guy in like a, in a, in a, in a room by himself, uh, working on a, on a, on a blackboard, you know, with chalk. So when was the last time you actually picked up a physical piece of chalk? 
<laughs> I think that was freshman year of undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I have always believed that, and one of my favorite, I don't know who said it first, but one of my mm. favorite phrases or statements that I've ever heard is, mathematics is the universal language. And I find mm. it to be very elegant, elegant that we are using mathematics as the way to explore and understand the universe. Mm. Do I, 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 I hesitate to ask you to simplify something that is as complex as what you do on a daily basis, but can you give me a, a I'm going to say a freshman college level presentation of how machine learning actually applies to i mean how how do those go together how do i yeah. how does the computer start to realize these things about the universe that there's no way that computer should know anything about yeah it's it's a really great question so how do you how do you that's, that's basically my job how do you how do you marry the world of of artificial intelligence with uh gravitational wave astronomy um would you, maybe maybe I should back up um so is it, is it would it be okay if i, if I go in and try and explain uh, how how light sure. it works it is your universe. You go any direction you choose. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go on a journey. Um, <laughs> so, so I think it, I think the story really starts uh, back about a hundred years ago uh, in 1916 uh, with Albert Einstein um, and his now famous theory of general relativity. Um, and so, in his theory of general relativity, he he sort of it's he he describes gravity in a very funny way, um, where he says gravity is really actually just the result of the curvature of something called space time. So, so what is what is space time? So space space and time space time is basically like this fabric. You can imagine like a tarp, um, where it's space. You know, there's the the space around you, me, and uh, in time. But they're both interwoven and they're both interconnected with each other. But the more massive an object is, the more it's going to to warp space time around it. Um, and that's that's really that's really what that's that's how you get gravity, right? So the more an object warps space time, the more where gravity it sort of induces, or the more more of a gravitational potential well and induces around itself. Um, so, but he also made this funny prediction. Uh, Einstein said that you can get these things called gravitational waves. So what, what are those? Well, it's 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 uh, you can imagine as, as as ripples in the fabric of space time. Um, so much like ripples on 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 the surface of a pond. It's it's much like that. Um, but it's really really hard to get because space time is incredibly stiff. Um, you need incredibly massive objects moving at um, you know, incredible speeds and smashing into each other to get these these ripples on on the fabric of space time. Um, and so the way you do that is you say you have like uh, two black holes, um, which are really really cool, interesting um, objects, very mysterious. Um, and they result from the from the from the from the from the death of a of a supermassive star. Um, and they're incredibly dense objects, almost infinitely dense, um, and they're incredibly massive. So say you have like two of these and they're about, you know, say 20 or 30 times the mass of our own sun, about maybe the size of the state of Montana. You have two of them and you have them just swirling around each other. What they do as they get closer and closer is they stir space time more and more and more, much like a, like a blender. Right. And as they get closer and closer and closer, they finally merge and at about half the speed of light. Right. Which is crazy. I mean, think about that. Two, two things the size of the state of Montana, you know, merging at half the speed of light. You just don't. You don't see that every day, um, and and they create these ripples in the fabric of space time, which are incredibly small, given even even given this incredibly violent and cataclysmic uh, collision, you know, 
Um, it's about it's so small. It's about one ten thousandth the diameter of a proton that these things bend and stretch you and squeeze you when they when they pass through you. Um, so, but it's if you can measure that, you can then do a whole new form of astronomy. If you can measure gravitational waves from from events like this, like like merging black holes and even these things like merging neutron stars, which is another really funny, weird uh, object. Um, you could do a whole new form of astronomy, uh, which is amazing. It's, um, and, but we were able to do that uh, in 2015 uh, when we first detected uh, the binary black hole merger uh, of, two, of two black holes from about 1.3 billion light years away, which, is also, which also means 1.3 billion uh, years ago, which, I mean, that was just when uh, microbial life uh, was starting out, out on Earth. And then, you know, one billion years later, humans finally detect these uh, things. And that, I think that's just really, really incredible really mind-boggling um yeah no go ahead go ahead oh uh i was uh yeah so when but when these things actually finally pass through for the earth uh we 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 try to detect them and it's incredibly hard incredibly hard to do it's it's the most it's the most like um precise uh scientific measure measurement ever ever attempted by science um so what we do is we use uh what we use ligo uh which is an acronym stands for the laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory uh, which I know is a bit of a mouthful, um, but the way you can think of it is it's a very, very precise ruler. It's a very, very precise ruler. And the way we measure these, these ripples is using this ruler, which, which, uh, which includes using lasers and mirrors. And, and it's sort of in this like L-shaped like configuration where at the corner of the cell, you have the laser, you have a laser beam, and it goes through and it gets split up into two separate beams. So one travels down one length of the arm, the other tra travels down the other length of the arm. And it hits two mirrors at the very end. And these, these arms are huge. They're massive. Um, they're about like four kilometers long. I think it's about two and a half miles, right? And it travels all the way down these arms. And it hits two mirrors and it comes all the way back. And they recombine at the very corner of the, the L. And what happens is they, they combine in such a way that the light beams sort of cancel each other out. So you don't see anything. There's just nothingness. But when a gravitational wave comes down, whoosh, and then it hits the, the interferometer, it then will bend and stretch those arms back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then what happens is the light actually sort of seeps through. And that's, the, that's how we, we measure a gravitational wave. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really, really hard thing to measure. I mean, like I said, it's, you're trying to measure like a, a wiggle in those arms, a one ten thousandth diameter proton. That's, that's like standing on Earth and looking at like the nearest star away. I think it's like Alpha Centauri or something. And it's like trying to watch that star wiggle by the width of a human hair, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. It's uh, insane. But I mean, we were, we were able to do that a few years ago. And, and yeah, it's, it's been a ride since then. It, it reminds me of a Mythbusters episode that I saw where they have this massive explosion. I think they blew up a dump truck or something i can't remember but they played it at super high speed they recorded it at super high speed and when they played it back you could see the sound wave in the recording and that is counterintuitive to to human observation we don't see sounds as a general rule now there are um uh, mental situations where humans uh, i think they call it polysthesia where you can see sounds and hear colors but mm -hmm. it sounds like the project you're working on is having to measure something with a different sense than 
I mean, we obviously can see the effect of a gra- of a gravitational wave, but we can't smell it or or yeah. see the actual wave itself. And so, I'm I'm curious. The reason the, all this leads up to this question: humans have a genetic disposition to look for patterns in everything. It's right. how our it's how our subconscious and conscious minds. Uh, rationalize the images that we see and the information that we take in. Is there, you have to be hyper aware of that fact because you want to make sure as a researcher, as a scientist, you obviously want to make sure that you're not seeing something that's not there, right? Right, exactly. I mean, um, the, like I said, we're trying to make this incredibly precise uh, measurement. So you, yeah, the, as, as, a, as a result of that, the instruments are, are very, very sensitive to all kinds of of noise sources, um, some really crazy ones too. Um, so I mean, at the um, so one thing that we're really uh, sensitive to are earthquakes, right? So earthquakes from anywhere on the planet, you know, even even those. So we have we have two inst- we have two um, uh, observatories uh, in the United States. One's in uh, Livingston, Louisiana, um, and the other one's in Hanford, Washington State, Eastern Washington State, and they're both relatively isolated, and, and that's that's partly the reasons because they're so sensitive. Um, but you know, we're, we're sensitive to earthquakes from all over the globe. Um, even really minor ones that you get like in Oklahoma or, 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 uh, North Dakota or, or, or Alaska, those can adversely affect, affect how we, how we, how we take these measurements. Um, but well, what we can do is you can actually, there's, there's a, there's a thing, um, there's a program that we use, um, called Seismon, which actually uses machine learning to, um, if, if, if say the United uh, States Geological Services gives out a, a earthquake warning or something um, in like Indonesia, uh, what, what will happen is we'll take like all the information from the earthquake, so like how deep it is, um, how, 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 uh, what's its magnitude, um, and we'll calculate how long it's going to take to get to both these observatories before it actually arrives. Um, and then we'll send an alert to both, uh, to both sites and we'll tell them, hey, there's an earthquake coming. Um, and what they can do is they're really, really smart and it's an incredible, incredible engineering feat, but they can, you can in, in a sense, write out the earthquake if they're given enough uh, warning and it's not too close. Um, so there's things like that you have to be, you have to be careful about. Um, and there's even, even uh, cars going down on the highway uh, near the observatory in, in Livingston and Hanford. Um, if one hits, if a large truck hits a pothole, we'll see that. Right. Um, which is just uh, incredible. Um, and other things like, like quantum, quantum noise, quantum shot noise, which is um, it's, it's basically, it has to do with something called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle where you really, you can only be so sensitive in one of two things, um, and it's we actually don't really know how much light is hitting uh, the photon. Not exactly how much. I mean, how much? How many? How much light is uh, we're measuring uh, from the laser? And so it's about um, trying to understand how to how to get rid of that noise. Um, so it's really it's very very difficult. We're affected by quantum stuff and, and earthquakes, and even when the mirrors heat up, they actually they they curve just a little bit. They sort of move around. Um, on a, on a, on a very, very, very small scale. Um, so it's difficult. It's very difficult. You've mentioned a couple of times, uh, curving or a a wave. And as a general rule, my understanding of a wave is that it is a curved, it's a curved device. It's a curved, uh, occurrence of something, whether it's sound or energy or light that it, that it curves. Light doesn't generally curve unless forced to, but you know what I mean? The, the fact that Einstein himself described gravity as something that can curve and come in a wave, 
is that curve something that can be measured mathematically? Is there a ratio to um, the curve and the rise and fall of a wave in gravity? Or is it too soon in the process for us to be able to kind of do that calculation? Hmm. So I'm trying to, let me think. Because uh... like I can plot the curve on a pebble that is X number of centimeters around. It's perfectly round. I can hmm. calculate with mathematical precision based on the liquid that I drop it into and the viscosity. I can calculate um, the intensity of each rise and fall of each successive wave and then the deterioration of each wave from the largest original wave to the next one to the reverberation. There's a there's a a mathematical degradation that happens. Is yeah, that it's like, like dampening, dampening of the waves. That, yeah. No, so like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So can you can you damp a gravitational or, wave? Or do we think that gravitational waves dampen? Yeah, well, so um, they're really, they're really, uh, they're really cool because uh, so with um, a gravitational wave, it it really it can it passes through just about everything. The only thing that really um, affects the gravitational wave is is mass, right? Because um, because a gravitational wave is just a ripple in space time, so it's like this sort of wave in space time, um, which is the result of moving mass, right? Um, so if it passes through something that's incredibly massive, say like a, a star cluster or, or a galaxy or something, um, I think you know, I wouldn't quote me on this. I think I think you can get some gravitational lensing, some sort of effect like that, um, to where, yeah. So the mass would possibly it would dampen it a little bit, but not 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 by very much because these things can travel over many billions and billions of light years um, without with with without dampening enough to where we would we wouldn't be able to detect them um so yeah yeah it, 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 not not very much they don't damage very much it's not a not a very significant effect could you matt could you measure the speed of a specific point in a wave yeah so can you measure the speed of gravitational waves uh that's a that, that's a really uh, great question um because uh that has some very um significant um implications if you can do that so, for example, um, just uh, very recently, I think last year, uh, we detected for the first time the merger of a binary neutron star system. So the cool thing about those is that with a binary, so with a binary black hole system, when they merge, they, there's no light that's emitted, right? Because I mean, they're, they're black. Um, but when a binary neutron star system merges, two neutron stars, which is basically two very, really, really cool, very funky things. They're like about the size of Manhattan Island. And if you took a teaspoon of the neutron star matter, it weighs as much as Mount Everest. Really weird. But if you had these two things merge, um, what they do is they emit a burst of gamma ray, gamma ray light, these jets that pop out at like nearly the speed of light. Um, and what you could do is you can then measure both the gravitational waves from that event and the gamma rays that come out after that. And gravitational waves actually travel at the speed of light. Um, so what you can do is you can actually you can do you can measure the speed of light using gravitational waves with, by comparing the gamma rays that are emitted and the gravitational waves that you that you observe, um, which is really really cool. Um, and um, by measuring the speed too, you can also uh, learn some things about the Hubble constant, which um, is basically something that we use to determine how fast the universe is expanding, right? Which has some huge implications for you know wh where the universe is headed, 
and basically how, how the universe is going to die, right? Um, is it going to just keep expanding and just keep expand on forever and, 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 and maybe have like sort of a cold like death? Or is it going to then stop and then contract and come back down? You have a big crunch where at the end everything just comes back together. Or is it just going to peter out and sort of go into this like stasis-like effect? Um, we, we don't quite know yet. So that's, that's, there are some really interesting implications. So machine learning obviously is going to be a huge boon. It's going to be a real benefit to, to being able to process this information and, and make strides in this field of observation that you're working in. Is there a possibility that that machine learning could be more... I don't know, effective or have more opportunity if it wasn't Earth-based? Let's say that I give you a year to go to the space station. Could research performed at the space station be less, uh, what's the word, noisy than all the things you have to deal with when trying to make these observations on the planet? Yeah, yeah, that would be uh, that would be great, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> so there's, um, yeah, especially with uh, with seismic noise and other things like that. Um, and the great thing about space is that there's a lot of it, right? So um, the bigger you make these uh, these observatories, these gravitational observatories, the the more sensitive, the more easier, the easier it is to detect uh, different objects. Um, so there is this proposal for something called LISA, which stands for the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. So it's basically the space-based version of LIGO. Um, and there's been some uh, recent success with this, with the uh, LISA Pathfinder mission, which sent out like a, a, a probe uh, that was going to test all the technology that was going to be used in this space-based version of LIGO. Um, and it, they, they, they broke through all of their um, requirements. They, they were just phenomenal uh, what they got back. Um, and basically what they did is they took out this probe that, that they had these two golden uh, um, uh, cubes that were in it. And what they were trying to do was to sort of put them in free fall and have them so that um, they were in this like perfect free fall, which was really cool. Um, uh, and they were able to do it and very, very well. Um, but yeah, so there's there, there if you did the space based version of this, that would be that would be great. Um, and you can measure all kinds. Of, you can measure different uh, objects, too, like supermassive black holes, black holes that are millions of times the mass of the sun. I mean, how, how cool is that? I mean, I mean, uh, mm. Now I want to I want to clarify I'm not advocating that we kick you off the planet. I didn't want it to come across <laughs> that way. I was just saying if you have the opportunity to do that, I hope that you enjoy your time in space. That's just all I'm saying. Uh and of course um, when you talk to uh Dr. Tyson today cuz I know you're probably Facebook friends, just tell him I said hey. Just tell him I said hi. Oh, I will. I'll put in a good word. Don't worry. I do appreciate that. That's very kind of you. Today, I've been speaking with Hunter Gabbard, not only a PhD candidate from the University of Glasgow, but he's also a researcher on the LIGO-Virgo scientific collaboration. Hunter, thank you so much. Or should I almost say Dr. Gabbard? Almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> so close. Uh, future Dr. Gabbard, thank you so much for taking the time today. It has been absolutely fascinating, and I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. It was a lot of fun. Hope you have a wonderful day, and I cannot wait to read about and then talk to you about the next big thing that you guys discover, because it's definitely on the horizon. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.